Welcome to Literary Speaking with Crystal Lee Quibell. Literary Speaking is the author's guide to writing and publishing, sharing tips and tricks for aspiring authors. Crystal Lee's expert guests will bring you the latest information on how to write and publish your book into being. Are you ready to tell your story? Here's your host. Welcome to Literary Speaking. I'm your host, Crystal Lee Quibel. Today we're speaking with Aspen Mattis. On her second night of college, she was raped. Shattered and alone, she fled to the Mexican border and headed north through 2,650 miles of desert and mountains to Canada. Walking the height of America in search of home, she ended up writing an article for the New York Times titled The Hitchhiker's Guide to Healing after her trek, which led to a book deal and her internationally selling bet best-selling memoir, Girl in the Woods. Aspen, welcome to the show. Crystal, thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you so much for being here. Aspen, you realized during your time on the PCT that you had this deep desire to be a writer. Did you keep a journal at this time, knowing you would use it to tell your story when you returned? I did, but it was sort of an intermittent journal. It was like whenever I had something that I was dealing with, that I was trying to figure out. I was really writing to find out what I thought, what I felt, why I felt the way that I felt. Um, on those days and those nights, I would write. Um, but there are huge gaps, too. It was like by no means like a comp- comprehensive um, cataloging of my walk. So um, when it came time to write the book, I had to pull from so many other resources, like photographs and Google Maps. Like The cool thing about this trail was that you know, there was sort of a geographical map to it, so I could always be like, well, I know that this incident happened at Live Oak Spring, so I can now Google mm-hmm. map Live Oak Spring, and oh my gosh, like, that that bench was actually there, not there. Um, yeah. It's like this incredible um, second resource to check my memory and my photographs and, and my writing against, because my journal had been so um, more, like, in my mind and not, like, of the world, mm-hmm. you know. You you ended up writing an article for the New York Times Modern Love uh, column entitled A Hiker's Guide to Healing. How did that lead to a book deal for you? Yeah, so actually the story of how I got into the New York Times as a 22-year-old college dropout is also, I think, really um, helpful. What I did was I took a, a writing class um, in which the goal of the class was to write and publish um, a powerful personal piece by the end of the class to pay for the class. So you couldn't get an A unless you'd sold a piece and gotten paid. And so it was really like an incredible vocational, exciting approach to writing um, that I had never seen in any of my, you know, college courses um, at my, like, more conventional school. This was at the new school in New York, um, and it was taught by this incredible professor who I think you had on the program last week, Susan Shapiro. Yes, Susan's fantastic. Yeah, and so what she did was, she basically tells you to, to tell the story that is burning in you, like your, either your most humiliating secret, something that's always ashamed you that you just could never say, but you've always, it's, you've always felt consumed by it because it's been a secret and secrets become lies. And she, her advice is always to lead the least secretive life you can lead um, mm-hmm. to heal. And so... Um, and also these are the compelling stories. Like whenever you try to whitewash something or gloss over it or make it pretty, it's never interesting and it's never true. I think the truth is by its nature interesting um, and by its nature beautiful. Even if, there's, As 
Steinbeck said there's more beauty in truth even if it's terrible beauty. Mm, I love that. So there's more beauty in truth even if it's terrible beauty. That's a tweetable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Steinbeck, not me, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> your story, you know, your story's clearly emotional, and I found you just wrote so honestly about your experiences as a rape survivor, including, you know, some of the reactions you received from your parents and siblings when you revealed you had been raped. You know, when you ended up writing all of this out and it became a book, how did your family react when you sent them a copy? Yeah, so um, so they they knew that I was writing this book, and really like, the New York Times piece was the more sh- shocking piece mm-hmm. because it was the first time. Um, and I know that my, you know, not everyone in my family felt wonderfully about it. They felt, you know, I remember my mom said to me, like, I don't know about you, but I think our sex lives should be private. And I responded, my rape is not my sex life. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like, ultimately, you're not telling your story to be a PR machine for your family. You're not telling mm-hmm. your story to, with an agenda, like, you shouldn't be. If you are, then it's probably, again, not very true or very interesting. You should be telling your story because you, like, because there is a juncture, and you're at that juncture, and again and again and again you turn left, and you notice this pattern that you always turn left, you always turn left, you always, you know, when it's a choice between sugar and broccoli, you always eat the sugar, and you want to figure out why you do that, and you want to instead pause at that juncture and eat the broccoli. I mean, that's just like a silly example, but I really do think that, like, great writing comes from a place of writing to find out what you think, writing to find out why you do that thing you always do, and how this pattern was established, and, and it's always a story that will unearth that. Um, yeah. And those are the stories that other people, like, are what you think is, like, your most embarrassing, humiliating secret that must only apply to you, and you must be the only one. Like, I thought I must be the only one who had asked my rapist to sleep over after he raped me. I thought I felt so tremendously ashamed. I thought this must be evidence that I'm crazy, that I have terrible judgment. Um, but when I published that detail in the New York Times, I braced myself. I expected to hear from everyone, yeah. oh, well, she asked him to sleep over, so how could that be rape? That's not rape. Yeah. But instead, I heard from hundreds and hundreds of people who said, I also asked my rapist to sleep over, or I wrote my rapist love poetry, or... I tutored him in chemistry, or I wrote him a love song, and I thought I must be the only one. So you're never the only one, and that's really the other thing that writing does that's so exciting. It helps you find your people, and it gives your people the knowledge that they're not the only one, that this is not something wrong with them, that like their behavior in the aftermath of a trauma is nothing to be ashamed of. Nothing you do in the aftermath of a trauma is, quote-unquote, wrong. There's no wrong way to grieve. And, like, they see that they are not alone. And when you find your people, um, you can see more clearly and and other people can see. You can see in other people's stories more clearly than you can see in your own sometimes that it's not a shame on her. It's shame on him. The shame that she is feeling is misplaced shame. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes we're kinder with others than we are with ourselves. I had a friend once say to me, never be mad at yourself for something a friend wouldn't be mad at you for. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, and writing so... brings you that empathetic witness. Yeah, the empathetic witness. I love that. Well, everyone, you're listening to Literary Speaking with Crystal Lee Quibble. Today we're talking to author Aspen Mattis about her memoir, Girl in the Woods. When we come back from the break, we'll discuss more about her writing practice, her advice for aspiring authors everywhere, and how her story inspired actress and writer Lena Dunham. We'll be right back. Your story is begging to be told, but do you know where to start? Crystal Lee Quibell is dedicated to helping you achieve your book publishing dreams. Go to crystalleequibell.com. That's crystalleequibell, Q-U-I-B-E-L-L.com, and sign up for Crystal Lee's newsletter today. Welcome back to Literary Speaking. I'm your host, Crystal Lee Quibble. We're continuing our conversation today with author of the memoir, Girl in the Woods, Aspen Mattis, her writing practice and advice for aspiring authors, and also how her story inspired actress and writer, Lena Dunham. Welcome back, Aspen. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, thanks for being here. So we spoke a little bit before the break about um, you writing for the, the New York Times. How did you get in to write that column? Because that really led to you um, obtaining a book deal. Yeah, so I was in a journalism class at the New School, and it was actually just a, a continuing education class anyone could enroll in. Um, this truly extraordinary class that my mentor, Susan Shapiro, taught called The Instant Gratification Takes Too Long uh, School of Journalism, where we all had to publish. And so... Okay. Um, <laughs> and so she told us, if you want to get a book deal, the very best place to get published is the Modern Love Column because it's simply the most read column in America. It's the most read column in the New York Times. I think something like 9 million people read it every week, something absurd and insane like that, or something like that, like a ton of people, a way bigger audience than you could ever get like by posting something on your blog or by even publishing somewhere prestigious and smaller, like, you know, a literary magazine. Um, so I really wanted to get into this column, Modern Love. And what um, I did was I learned as much as I possibly could about this column. Like, Modern Love has a Facebook page. If you go onto the Facebook page, it not only posts each week's Modern Love, so you can read about, you know, 100 examples, so you can model yours after, because it, it does have a form, Usually mm-hmm. there's one main scene, and, like, it begins, it kind of has, like, a very circular form often. Um, so you could read a bunch and learn the form so that you're making sure that you're not submitting something entirely inconsistent with the form that they publish. Um, so, But you can also see on that page that they publish really helpful tips. Like, for example, he tells you the editor, Jan Jones, is just one man who edits Modern Love, and he gets, I think, like, something like 200 submissions a week. So you have a 1 in 200 shot each week. Um, and what he says is, um, I don't, this is just one example of one of his tips that I read that um, was tremendously helpful. Please do not submit your piece at 1,500 words. The, the column runs at 1,500 words, but I prefer it when people submit it at 1,700 words because I like to be able to cut the fat and I don't want to have to come back to you for more filler. Um, so... Had I not read that, I would have submitted my column at 1,500 words, knowing that the column yeah. runs at 1,500 words, but I submitted it at 17, and I think he really appreciates that, and I think he actually just automatically eliminates pieces that come in under 15. So he, there's, he has a little bit of tolerance for like it being short, but also he would never read anything over 
I think, like, 2000, you know, like, yes. best to submit just at 17, because that's what he wants. Like, and you put yourself, when you submit just at 17, you put yourself ahead and in front of all these other people who don't know this very simple thing that you wouldn't have known had you not, you know, read his his tips. And that's just one of many examples, that, you know, because he has so many tips. So I read all of those. I read the column a bunch of times, and then I revised this piece obsessively um, and then submitted submitted it to him um, with just a very minimal cover letter, just like three sentences. That's all he wants, just, you know, attached and pasted, oh, please sign my essay. He doesn't want um, you to, you know, give your biography. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, and, so I, and then I got, I think, extremely lucky, but also... Um, I had polished that story in a writing class for a semester. I had revised it 19 times, and I just I locked into every piece of it. Like, if there's a piece of information that's available to you that could be helpful to you, mm-hmm. use it. Like, yeah, that resource is so incredible. If you want it, if you want to get into modern love, read 50 modern love columns and read all of his tips, and make sure before you submit, check your submission against all of his tips and make sure that you've applied every one of them. So you are each one eliminates some people. Some people who didn't apply this one are now behind you. Mm-hmm. So as a result of writing this article, you had agents contact you directly after it was publicized? Right. Yeah, so I had no agent. You don't need an agent to submit to the New York Times or to mm-hmm. any um, any publication, really. Yeah. Um, and so once... This article was published. I heard from a handful of agents and also a handful of book editors. And actually, it's funny. The very first editor to contact me, the very first one, was um, an editor at Harper Collins, which was the publisher that I went with. But that, uh-huh. I mean, that said so much about their enthusiasm and how their thumb was on the pulse of it and how badly they wanted it. Um, yeah. But but I did not, by any means, like sign with them right away. Instead. Um, so every single person who who wrote to me, both agents and editors, were like, uh, "Do you have a memoir? Do you have a book? We love your modern love essay. Do you have a book?" And I didn't. I had those pages of journal entries that we had talked that you and I talked about, um, and I had tons of writing that I had done that was very much for myself, but it was by no means a book. And yeah. so I was like, "Shoot, what do I do?" So I asked my mentor, Susan Shapiro, like, what do I do? Everyone wants to know at this minute if I have a book. I don't. And she said, here's what you do. You respond to every single one of them. I do. I'm writing a book, but I am not yet ready to show you pages. So I responded to every single one. I do, but I am not yet ready to show you pages. And every single one of them responded, standing by, standing by, standing by. And it was just like amazingly brilliant because it was true. And then I had to get to work. Yeah, and then I really got to work, and then I treated my writing like a full time job. I started to, you know, neglect my other classes and focus. And that summer, I in six weeks of summer, I wrote a book proposal. Because um, you either have to have a completed book or a book proposal to sign with an agent. Yes. Yeah. Did you? What was your writing practice like? Do you have one that you commit to each day? Yeah. So I would say like. I'm a consistently inconsistent writer in terms of time of day and all of those things, but the key and the one consistency that is the key is that I write every day because mm-hmm. writing spawns writing, and one day off yes. really is two days lost because mm-hmm. ideas trigger ideas. You know, 
Um, and it's so much warm-up to, like, get back in it. Getting getting in it is always takes so much longer than when you're in it. You can write, you know, three pages in, like, an hour. Yeah. And think about it this way. This is something um, that many people don't really realize. If you write for an hour a day every day and you write a page in that hour, one page a day is one book a year. That's so true. That's so true. When you finished writing your rough draft, you know, was there an amount of pages or or words that you ended up with? Like how much did you have in the original rough draft? Yes, yeah, so my first draft was 1,280 pages. It wow. was way too long. I'm a, I'm a fast writer. Yes. And basically I, wrote, I told every story that I that was burning in me. I told every story I needed mm-hmm. to tell. And then I had to show it to editors who I trusted um, to tell me, like, you know, this story is too elliptical. This this is beautiful, but this scene is not necessary. Okay, Aspen, you have four scenes that all effectively do the same thing narratively. Mm-hmm. And while they're all, like, beautiful, let's pick the most powerful one. And so... Yeah. Then so that was it was really a distillation process and it was like writing a memoir is like putting together a puzzle the pieces of which you must also construct. Mhm. That's so and true. And it's exciting. And was did you find the process of editing your work just as emotional as writing and working through your story? Absolutely, because editing also was rewriting. Editing was yeah. Oh my god, you know what editing really was? It was like they would identify like okay, so you've written a thousand too many pages um, about this and that and the other thing, but you never write about this thing. And this is what what the missing, you know, this is what everyone would be wondering. This is what's missing. And it was always like, you know, why haven't you written about, you know, like mm-hmm. falling in love with your ex-husband? Well, it's because that's incredibly painful and he's my ex-husband. And I, the, mm-hmm. the worst part of the end of a relationship is remembering the beginning when it was beautiful so I could write so effectively mm. about the end of the relationship which did not belong in the book and which didn't go in the book but writing about the first time I made love to my husband or or telling my husband about my rape or mm. like all the times when he was wonderful and he was so wonderful that was so painful and that I really like you know I, I could write about I could write for a thousand years about a thousand other things to to avoid writing about that <laughs> until I couldn't until I had a deadline and then they were like we need we need to see this this is an a necessary element in the story whereas yeah. you know him you know not getting a job after you guys got married is not a necessary element in this story. Yeah, so it's really you know you have to be very careful about what you cut and. And, you know, sometimes you have to be a bit ruthless with it. You know, you also ended up getting this wonderful endorsement on the front cover of your book from Lena Dunham, writer and star of the hit HBO series Girls. How did you end up connecting with her over your book? Yeah, so Lena and I um, first met um, through John Cameron Mitchell, who is one of the uh, smaller (laughs) part actors, but also one of the directors on her show. Um, And he... sent her My Modern Love, and she read it, and she loved it, and um, it's kind of a long story, but um, I guess the only important part, like, we, we, you know, she invited me to the set of girls, and she was wonderful, and I think she had some interest in my story in terms of maybe playing me in it, but that didn't work out, 
But instead, we sort of remained in touch. And um, years later, when her memoir came out, which was so beautiful, her mm-hmm. actually her essay collection, um, Not That Kind of Girl, such such a gorgeous collection. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, she really, wrote to she me mentioned... that she, yeah, she wrote to me saying that, thanking me for emboldening her. Um, she said for emboldening me, for making me brave. Um, yeah. To tell my own story because she she writes about her own college assault in that book, mm-hmm. um, and I had no idea that my modern love um, made her braver. Um, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I really think touching. it is touching. I mean, I know when I read this story, I couldn't help but underline and highlight and earmark the, all these pages, and I just kept making notes because I thought this has to go in my personal library and be passed on to my children because I think it's just so important for young women and men everywhere to read it. There's just so much wisdom to be shared, and um, I just felt like it really does give a voice to all survivors of rape and sexual assault because if for you being brave enough to tell your story it also invites others to be brave as well right yeah i I hope so thank you i hope that people will see that they are never alone mm-hmm. you're never al- like no matter how like how idiosyncratic and, and terrible and weird and specific and horrible you think your story is and how you're like oh well no one else could have done this thing that's never yeah. the case. And that thing, that little thing that ashames you, is never the thing to be ashamed about. That's just, it's the thing that you're locking onto. So, because because you're getting feedback to be ashamed from everyone. Everyone, mm-hmm. you know, in my life, too many people asked me questions that made me feel like I was put in a position of defending. Um, yeah. Like, wh- what did I do to cause him to rape me? And it's like, no. You know, it is not your responsibility to prevent someone from attacking you. It is their responsibility not to attack you. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, there was a moment, I think, when I was reading, and, you know, you're like, nothing causes rape. Rapists cause rape, you know. And I was just like, that's so true. And we really, we don't convey that to young women. We, you know, we're kind of taught to keep it quiet and not talk about it. But I think the more we talk about it, it's just as important for mothers to teach their sons that this you don't do this. This is not how you treat women. And I think a lot of the this blame is gets, wrong. Yeah, and yeah, this is wrong, and it, we don't have that feedback in our society because it's just a fact that three percent of rape cases get prosecuted, and one in four college-age women in America are raped. It's wow. like an unprosecuted crime in America. You're way more likely mm-hmm. to go to jail for having marijuana than you are yes. for raping, yes. for a violent felony, like the wow. second most violent crime I can think of. That's I can't even imagine. You know, I just think it's fantastic that you've written this and put it out there, and you're helping so many people. Um, but one of the things I felt was so great is that you're donating 5% of the profits from Girl in the Woods towards the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, which is this nonprofit organization committed to helping rape victims heal. So I just, you know, I just want to thank you so much, Asin, for being so brave and for telling your story so boldly and encouraging others to share their stories and shed their shame 
Thank you so much for being here today. Aspen Mattis can be found online at aspen-mattis.com. Her book, Girl in the Woods, can be purchased online and in bookstores near you. Please make sure you go and order a copy and leave reviews on Amazon and Goodreads. This is a must-have book. You must share this with your girlfriends, with your husbands, with your children. Join us next time on Literary Speaking for more tips and tricks on how to get your work published as we speak with editor and writer's digest books, best-selling humor book writer and freelance editor Chuck Sambuchino. I'm your host, Crystal Lee Quibble. Thank you, Aspen, again so much. I'm so looking forward to talking with you again, and thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening to Literary Speaking with your host, Crystal Lee Quibell. To start discovering how you can begin telling your story, go to crystalleequibell.com. That's crystalleequibell, Q-U-I-B-E-L-L.com. And sign up for Crystal Lee's newsletter. Join us again next week for more advice from your favorite authors and publishing professionals.